What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What is Crackalackin' Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Favalli. Before we give you this week's mailbag, just a fair warning that this was our first time using the Locker Room app for it. We had some great questions that came in live. I would encourage all of you to continue joining us Sundays, 4 p.m. every single week, like clockwork, unless we announce otherwise. Uh, there's It did not go the smoothest. It was our first time on Locker Room app, which is a fantastic app, but we were trying to hook it up with desktop, and so we had some technical difficulties. The sound quality is still fine. Uh, we we chopped it up a, a little bit, so that should be even more consumable. We hope you enjoy us answering your questions, but just wanted to give anyone a heads up there. Where if it sounds like Adam and I are out of our element, it's because we very much are. But we're going to continue doing this moving forward, and they will get better. I absolutely promise you. Quick housekeeping notes, as usual. Please, please, pretty please, remember to subscribe to this podcast and download every episode wherever you do get your podcast. We also ask that whether or not you use iTunes, head over there, search Hardwood Knox. Throw us that five-star rating. Reviews help us out a ton as well. And follow us on Twitter at Hardwood Knox. Follow the Sports Math Network at sports underscore math. And finally, keep sending us your mailbag questions. I like when I get DMs for them. Um, we will continue to get to them. I have some in the bank. So if we didn't get to yours on this one, fear not, we'll do more of a we'll do another mailbag where, where those will get hit. You can DM me them if you would rather do it that way. Uh, and also join the locker room conversations. You can download the locker room app. It is really cool. You could listen to the mailbag live. You could come in, hop on, jump your question. We have an actual discussion with you. It's not just, Hey, here's your question. And then, and then leave. Uh, we do ask that you can keep the questions to like, you know, 30 seconds or, or less, and then we'll give you an opportunity to respond. And we really love to interact with you guys more. We have a ton of listeners. And like I said, at the previous podcast, whether you hate, listen to us, actually like us or indifferent to us, just come join us over there for some good hoops. Hoops talk will be super casual, informal. We hope you'll have a good time. We'll have a good time. Let's hop to this mailbag, though. How's it going, Jack? I think you can talk now if we're doing this correctly. Hey, guys. Uh, thank you so much for bringing me on. Um, yeah, so I, I actually had a, a question uh, pertaining to the Golden State Warriors, if that's okay. Absolutely. Okay, great. So, um, you know, I sort of have a long-term question in terms of, you know, obviously the Warriors have the Minnesota pick. Uh, that's top three protected next year. And, uh, you know, they also have James Wiseman. And, you know, I guess as where they stand, they will likely keep their own first round pick as well, because that's kind of top 20 protected uh, with OKC, I think with the Ubre trade. So I just wanted to know, um, 
do you guys think the Warriors front office mindset currently right now, you know, with where Steph is at in his prime and, you know, Clay coming back next year and, uh, you know, the opponents they have to face with the Nets and Lakers being so deep that they are, do you think that their overall uh, mindset is by this trade deadline, let's make some small trades to, you know, potentially bring up a few pieces that can strengthen the bench. And then during the off season, that's where you just sort of put all your chips in and go in big for an all-star. I just wanted to know your thoughts on that because I mean, just looking around the league, I'm not sure how many teams can really offer more than the Warriors currently right now. If a star is going to leave, you know, for a team that wants to rebuild, Um, I guess the only teams would be uh, Denver. If they include Michael Porter jr. Or, uh, or the 76ers with Ben Simmons. So yeah, just was curious to know, get your take on that. Yeah, I think so much depends on like who explicitly becomes available. Like if Bradley Beal is actually shopped, which it seems like the Wizards have continuously been hesitant to do, then I think all of a sudden you are dangling those top tier assets. But just based on what Steve Kerr was saying before the All-Star break, and I, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but it seemed like he was hinting pretty heavily to the front office that like, yeah, some external help is needed and, and we do want to make those more immediate moves. I don't know if it'll be a blockbuster, but I would be pretty surprised if Golden State is totally quiet up to the trade deadline. Okay. Do you see Kelly Oubre uh, potentially being moved um, with where he's at in his career? And, uh, you know, although he's been really good for us as of late, um, obviously he's 25 years old. And do you think he might be the kind of guy who wouldn't really be okay with coming off the bench with where he's at currently in his career? Yeah, I think it makes sense to include him if only from a salary matching perspective, too. And just, you know, some team is going to be able to talk itself into the upside he's shown, you know, in in more recent games and in in previous seasons. So I wouldn't be surprised at all if he's included. But Dan is is our our trade expert. So I'll I'll let let him talk here. I first of all, this is a fantastic question for the first locker room one, considering it. We've also had all these mishaps before we started. So awesome question, Jack. I don't want to oversimplify what's going on with the Warriors, but they have Stephen Curry playing at a top five player level, still playing like an MVP. I'm not into slow playing this. And I try not to oversimplify these arguments. You absolutely should be shopping that Minnesota pick. If you know, Bradley Beal is probably not available. I would give up the Minnesota pick for, for Zach Levine. I wouldn't give up both James Wiseman and the Minnesota pick for Zach Levine. Uh, you do that. If, another star becomes available. I don't think you're going to get into a Carl Anthony Towns sweepstakes this season. And I think Adam touched on this already. That's where you do run into problems is you don't want to just swing a, a mediocre trade. And because that Minnesota pick is so valuable at the same time, if Zach Levine can be had for that Minnesota pick and stuff as the package, we like to call it, I, I would do it. Stephen Curry is so good now. And this team really needs guys who can create their own shot, who could really just help, run the offense or just not help but actually run the offense during the minutes that Steph sits and also make it easier on him when he's he's on the court and if you're looking at smaller moves I think it also you almost have to move Kelly Oubre Jr. I don't know what you're attaching to him to make him attractive maybe you're just taking on a longer contract but he's your best salary matching tool outside of you know Kavon Looney is the seventh highest paid player on this team and probably after you're, you're not going to move Steph, Clay, Wiggins just makes too much. You're, you're not at the point where you're going to move Draymond. 
And let's assume you're not going to move Wiseman unless it's for a Beal or another superstar. Um, that leaves Ubre really or, or Looney's salary. And I think you need to be shopping um, just anything that you could do. And while Adam says he doesn't expect the Warriors to sit still, I kind of do just based off everything they've said. They seem to have a lot more faith in themselves to develop talent and make do with what they have than we've actually seen. Uh, I don't want to di- what this franchise has done over the past you know seven years or whatever is fantastic, but they've continuously you know they they've missed on later first round picks. There's obviously Absolutely. a gamble. Yeah, so I'm I think that they need to do something. I'm also of the mind that they're not going to do anything if that yeah, makes my, any sense. My mindset is more that it's going to be a move around the periphery, like acquiring another rotation piece, maybe playing the buyout market as best they can. I don't think that Minnesota pick is going to be transferred during the season i wouldn't be surprised if it was during the off season since we tend to see a little bit more like star caliber movement at that stage so i I think we'll hear them in rumors but i I would expect the moves they do make to be smaller right i mean i'm just thinking to myself like already we've seen james wiseman with his potential that he has um obviously you know he's going to be a great player but that's probably four or five years down the road and steph is 33 years old uh he's going to be turning 33 in a few days so I honestly didn't get there under. I didn't get the understanding of what what exactly they're trying to do. Um, why draft a center first of all? Like, you know, when you know they're going to take a long time to develop, and uh, you know, okay, fine, you got him. But look at Clay's going to be coming back with two major injuries next year. Sure, even if he is ninety percent of who he was, right? I mean, I'm curious to know your take because, in my opinion, next year if the roster is exactly the same as it is, you know, barring a few bench tweaks i guess here and there and uh you know you keep wiseman and clay comes back i think we're going to be probably on the same tier as the clippers but a touch below the lakers and the nets definitely in my opinion and i'm just thinking like why are you trying to develop when you know steph is like you know everything that he did for the organizations why not just if that player is available, obviously, because I think the two players that I'm really interested in are Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. I mean, interested nope. in the sense that if the Lakers, I mean, if the Clippers really blow it up in the playoffs, if they really, really flame out, uh, will Kawhi leave? And if Kawhi were to leave, uh, where would he go? And if he were to go somewhere else, would they potentially make Paul George available considering everything that they um, gave up to get him for Kawhi? Um and one thing, and this goes back to my point about saying, I don't think in the immediate future, yes, the Minnesota pick is top three protected, but it, but it becomes unprotected in 2022 in the worst case scenario. I just don't see any other team having more to offer for any rebuilding team than the Warriors, potentially with Wiseman and two first round picks next year. So, Yeah, I think it's for me, it's just a little too soon to comment on a lot of that stuff because so much depends on both what happens in the playoffs and what Clay Thompson is going to look like. I mean, you, you said 90% of what he was before. Like, If he can get back to that, I think the Warriors would be pretty pleased coming off two straight missed seasons and the, and the major injuries. So, you know, I, I, it's just it's so it's such a hypothetical right now that I think it's hard to dive into those specific details. But I would ultimately agree that they do have the power to go out and, and get something done depending on who becomes available. And the availability is a really a huge part of it. And you mentioned Paul George or Kawhi Leonard. If Kawhi does leave, which I'd be skeptical, even if they got swept in the first round, just because he chose to be there and orchestrated the whole Paul George trade itself, I would still think that with the equity that the the Clippers gave up to acquire basically both Kawhi and Paul George, the best way I've hated, uh, heard it phrased is that um, the Clippers traded for both Kawhi and, and Paul George, and that the, th- the Thunder found a way to trade Kawhi without ever actually having him on their books, which is hysterical. 
they're not going to recoup that in a deal. And so I'd imagine they just try and rebuild a, a winner around PG. And that's why we're looking at such a you know bone thin star trade market right now and also potentially moving forward. I know everyone's on the lookout for that next star, but even with Bradley Beal, it feels like media fans, Hardwood Knox podcast, like we've just decided it up more than it actually is. We've decided he's going to be the next star out without him saying anything. So I understand why they would hold on to the asset, but I think you brought up a great point too. It's great that it's unprotected in 2022, but if it's unprotected in 2022, that means Minnesota landed in the top three of the draft. Um, what if they end up with Cade Cunningham? And I know rookies don't impact winning as much, no matter how good they are, rarely. But they have Carl Anthony Towns, um, maybe him and D'Lo. They've only played in five games together since the trade. If they're both healthy, mm-hmm. like they have the outline of a team that cannot suck, I think at least. And so this pick is probably its value is highest now when it's exactly. that unknown element. And mm-hmm. so yes, if Bradley Beal or Zach Levine's available, it's on the table. I don't think you can fault the Warriors. If they don't end up making a big move at this deadline, I think where you start to fault them is where you've already faulted them, is that if they keep up with this current team construction, they don't find a way to do something, anything. Because as of right now, they just feel like a quaint playoff team. And there's not even a guarantee. Mm-hmm. They might wind up in the play-in tournament and lose. And right. that's, I think, you know, the Light Years podcast, also a Blue Wire podcast, they do a great job, I think, of even being even keel and throwing criticism at Steve Kerr in the front office where they deserve it. And I just look at the makeup of this team and even without you know being able to factor in Clay's injury beforehand, it feels like they just made some some serious like in, inherent flaws or trusted in their own culture ability to develop far too much. Hardwood Knox listeners, if you're like me, your foray into adulthood has not included thinking too much about the sheets on which you sleep. You've probably had the same set for years, perhaps since you were in college or something disgusting along those lines, and you just wash them, rewash them, and then throw them back on your bed haphazardly, I might add. Sleep on them, don't give them a second thought. Little might you know, though, comfortable sheets can make all the difference. And that's why there's Brooklinen. They work directly with manufacturers to make luxury available directly to you without the luxury level markups. Brooklinen has a variety of sheets, colors, patterns, and materials to fit your needs and tastes. Brooklinen also has over 50,000 five-star reviews and counting. They are so confident in their product that they even offer a 365-day money-back guarantee. And Brooklinen is also so much more than sheets. They've got comforters, pillows, towels, even loungewear, and more. Go to brooklinen.com and use promo code NOX to get $25 off when you spend $100 or more, plus free shipping. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com and enter promo code NOX to get $25 off when you spend $100 or more plus free shipping. Brooklinen.com and use promo code NOX at checkout. Hey, I'm I'm going to go ahead and move us on to our next topic just so we don't spend too long on any one team or player here. Um, And I think our next speaker request was coming from Max Taylor, so I'll... Add you now, Max. How's it going? And it looks like you're yeah, muted I'm, right now, or no longer. Yeah, I'm doing. I'm doing good, Frank. So I just, I've just got a question about All Star Weekend, basically. So my question was going to be, um, like, who do you think will win, like, each event? So, like, the All Star Game, All Star MVP. Um, so the Rising Stars Games cancelled, but uh, Skills Challenge Three Point Contest and Dunk. And, and like the reasons why as well and if it's okay can i say my opinion as well once you yeah absolutely uh dan do you want to go first or do you want me to here i'll go first um 
I really want Robert Covington to win the skills challenge because he has no business being in there. And so that's just going to be my pick. I feel like just something weird is going to happen. Um, that's the fun pick. I, I do think Stephen Curry is going to win the three-point contest. It feels like he's been in it um, at least, you know, more or less one trillion times, and he's only won once, I believe. Just feels like this is going to be his year, and let him win something since the Warriors clearly aren't going to win anything this year. And then the dunk contest, this one's kind of tough. I'm really intrigued by Cassius Stanley. I also feel like I'm morally and contractually obligated to say uh, Obi Toppin. So I'm just going to go ahead and pick Anthony Simons. Except you've hated on him the whole time. So you're not really contractually obligated to this point. That's fair. So I'm going to go with Anthony Simons just because I've seen some of his in-game dunks. And that's someone who can really just like throw it down with force. And I think maybe he might be the most confident of the bunch, just having been in the NBA longer um, and actually having, I guess I'll call it like kind of a role with the Blazers, particularly of late. So th- those are my picks. Adam, who do you got? Yeah, I'm gonna, I, I, I don't have data to back this up, but I, I tend to believe that the younger guys in these these competitions tend to do a little bit better because they're more eager to prove themselves on this stage while surrounded by the top of the profession. So I, I'm going to go with Luka Doncic on the skills challenge. Um, I, I don't want to bet against Steph Curry's three-point shot, even though he's entered this contest six times before and has only won once. So I'm going to just play the the progression of the mean card and assume that he's going to win that one. And I'm going to go with Kasha Stanley here. I mean, the, the dude can absolutely fly, but I'm, I'm excited about this dunk contest in general. I know I've, I've seen people complaining about the lack of star power and big names in this, but I almost prefer it that way because we're really going to be focusing on the dunks and the showcases of athleticism. So I'm expecting big things from all three of them, but Stanley can just fly. Do you want to drop your picks, Max? Like you said, you wanted to. Yeah, for sure. I'll, I'll do that. So I'll, I'll start off with the uh, the main event, the All-Star game first. So uh, with the All-Star game, I, I feel like Team LeBron will win. You know, they got they, they, they got an OP starting lineup. You know, they got they got Steph at the point. Well, I assume Steph's going to play at the point. And then Luka's going to play shooting guard, LeBron small forward, Giannis power forward, Jokic center. That's just, that's just going to be OP. Like, you're not, you're not telling me you can overpower that stuff. Like... You know, Team Durant's had a few setbacks as well. You know, so, uh, so you know, it's 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 just a bit crazy because you know, AD's out. You know, then they got Devin Booker, and then and then um to to replace him, they they got Mike Conley though. Damn, but instead of Demar Derozan, damn. But like, I I think Team LeBron will win. Uh, and then All Star MVP. I I I. I, I I think I'm choosing Steph Curry for that. You know, I'm just getting Steph Curry vibes today. Love it. Yeah, I, I, I just feel like him and LeBron will connect and Steph will just be good. That's that's just what I feel like. Three-point contest, um, yeah, as, um, yeah, as Adam, said, Adam or Dan said, I, I forgot which one said that, sorry. Um, yeah, I feel like Steph's going to win it. Um Steph's going to win it, you know. As I said, I'm getting Steph vibes, and you can't really bet against the greatest shooter of all time, even though he has only won once. Um, and then dunk contest, yeah, I'm going to go with Anthony Simons. You know, I, I saw some, I saw some photos from him practicing for the dunk contest, and that man had a, that man was backwards with his head above the rim. Like, <laughs> damn, I didn't, I, I knew he could jump, but I didn't know he could jump like that, like. If he if he pulls a if he pulls off a dunk like that in the actual contest, you ain't telling me bro ain't getting a fifty. Like <laughs> unless Dwayne Wade's grading him. Like, of course. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, and then, um, and then skills challenge. I mean, it's between two people for me. It's like one A, one B type of situation. So, one of the people I feel like is Chris Paul. You know, he he, he a point guard. You know, he, he he got them point guard skills. He, he got that passing ability. He, he can put it through that tire thing. Like he can absolutely chuck it through that tire thing with mad accuracy. And uh, yeah, I just feel like he's a good shooter too. But then there's also Luka Doncic. You know, his his skill is insane you know he only just turned 22 and look what he's achieved already he's already a two-time all-star starter at age just turned 22 and that's insane as well so yeah i i'd say that situation's between uh chris paul and luke Doncic. that's my opinion on all the stuff the one thing i'm really hoping is that we end up seeing a dunk that's better than the zach levine layup line dunk we saw the other day because if if something manages to top that then i will be pleased with whatever happens tonight yeah that that that, that dunk was crazy like put put it through he bounced it through his legs then the arm was like pretty much under his bum and he still dunked so that was pretty cool yep but yeah, thank you so much for your, your question and contribution there, Max. I'm going to go ahead and move us on to Eli here. Uh, Eli Blue, I am granting you the speaking privileges now. How's it going? I have a question. It's uh, two Miami Heat questions. Is, yeah, fire away. Is Jimmy Butler a top 12 player? I think he is. And is there a universe where Bam Adebayo becomes the Jimmy um, Butler question. Sorry, Adam. We actually had another one too from Samir at Samir uh, H underscore Eat. As where does Jimmy Butler rank currently? And that's a fascinating discussion. This season's tough because of how much time he missed. But when you look at how good the Heat have been with him on the floor and what he does for them, as yeah, there's the scoring and the pressure he could put on the rim, but as a playmaker and then still just as a defender. Where I don't know if you're going to call Jimmy Butler underrated, but we get so caught up in these defensive player of the year discussions and how Bam's a huge part of why Miami's defense is as good as it is. Jimmy Butler is just absolutely right there. And he is a, a defensive maniac in the, in the best possible way. So when you're looking at full strength, Jimmy Butler, I wouldn't hesitate to call him top 12. If you're looking at specific value added for this season, you know, how much does availability factor in there? But I, I think it's pretty clear that Jimmy Butler, again, at full strength is a, is a top 12 player. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. I think that, you know, it's hard to delineate between like 11 and 14, just given how compressed some of those player rankings are. But he's unquestionably in that tier that would lead to top 12 status. I also love the second question. Um, I, I think it was like a couple of months ago now where I, I tweeted about how I thought that there was a realistic scenario in which Bam Adebayo could become the absolute best player in the NBA. I don't know how likely it is. Um, it, it requires regression from other young guys. It requires his trajectory to be absolutely perfect. But like, if you watch him play and see how much he offers uh, through versatility, through the the top skills that he has on both ends of the floor, like it does feel to me like there is a, a somewhat realistic possibility of him elevating himself to that top three, potentially top one status. Again, I'm not saying it's likely. I'm just saying that I think that that possibility at least exists. So my answer would be absolutely. I can see him being a top ten guy. Yeah, yeah his feet alone on defense. That's my that's my only additive in there. Is watch Bam Adebayo's feet on defense, and you'll come away mesmerized every single time. But I think, yeah, I agree with that. As a Miami Heat fan, 
I think that he's so versatile and such an amazing defender that sometimes it like sometimes it eats into his value because he's not, you know, walling off the paint because of how often he's on the perimeter because of that versatility. Sometimes I think he's, he's so, ver- he's so good that it's a fault almost, you know, I, and, and it's like, I don't know if you, I don't know if you want him to be that, uh, that Rudy Gobert, you know, wall off an entire area type of guy, or if you want him to be more so like, a more amped up rim protection version of Ben Simmons, like the go guard him. Cause I'm assuming Bam can guard like three through three through five. Right. And a lot of most, he can guard a lot of threes and most fives. Right. Is it? Yeah. Base? No, I think you're, I think you're totally right. And I would, I would agree with what you're saying during the regular season. I think it's partially because of just the Miami heats overall approach to the regular season, which is typically under Eric Spolstra using a little bit more experimentation and trying to figure out what exactly they have and these unique lineup combinations and Mm -hmm. schematic advantages they can gain that they then unleash in the playoffs. It's like how we saw last year where they didn't appear to be this regular season juggernaut and then the playoffs come around and they're doing everything that they should instead of experimenting. So I I think that Bam Adebayo's versatility on defense does lend itself to that progression where you're going to see them not totally maximize what he can do during these games that don't mean as much, trying to figure out what advantages they can gain in those contests that actually matter most. Yeah, I wouldn't have anything to add there from you. And I do, I actually agree with Eli's point where he's probably so versatile, it can take away from his overarching impact on paper sometimes, where it's it's sort of the Ben Simmons effect. Um, Bam doesn't have yeah, exactly. that like, level of range. But defensive yeah. PIPM or defensive LeBron or defensive Raptor aren't going to be able to encompensate his value because yeah. versatility isn't necessarily something that any regular season. Value. But I think, uh, I think, especially in the playoffs, because you don't have to. Eli, we're losing you here. I can't, I can't quite hear what you're saying. Can you hear me now? Yep. Yep. Okay. So I was saying that, like, be, uh, I think in a regular season, like the all-in-one stats uh, in the composite uh, impact metrics are going to overvalue maybe like rim protection a little bit because of how, you know, because of how much of a direct effect it has on on defensive uh, or on defensive uh, efficiency. But I think in the playoffs more so that having a guy who you can just be like, go out there and guard him is more valuable. Like having a Ben Simmons or a Bam Adebayo, in my opinion, is more valuable than having a Rudy Gobert because Rudy Gobert, there's just, first, there's teams that just play him off the court. And also it's like, it's like, there's only so much you can do as a drop cover center in the playoffs in the NBA. Like teams are going to attack you if he's in, in it. And I don't think it's a bad thing that he has those limitations. Well, it's a bad thing, yeah, that he has those limitations. But I don't think that's a direct indictment on him. More so, just how the league is progressing. I think the versatility is more more so valuable than. Yeah, I hear you. I'm gonna. I'm going to go ahead and um, remove you as a speaker now, Eli, because I'm going to let Dan respond to that and lead kind of a segue into one of the questions we received from the Twitter solicitation for our mailbag. Yeah, Media Day Jazz asked just how good is Rudy Gobert. And I think the the point Eli brings up is definitely valid in the sense that can you weigh the the optionality that a Ben Simmons provides um, differently from what Rudy Gobert is doing as a rim protector? 
for rim protector straight up specifically, I would have no disagreement. Rudy Gobert is just different, and he's not getting played off the floor ever, basically. It happened in the Rocket series for a minute, and the Jazz didn't even really, uh, two years ago now, and the Jazz didn't even really take him off the floor. They eventually adjusted their defense, and they were playing better defensively by the end of that that series. What Gobert does is, one, he can come out a lot higher than other bigs his size, and so he can move a lot better than them laterally, which is what makes him so good. And there is not another defense in the NBA that is geared towards actively letting guys get to the to the paint or around the paint because Rudy Gobert is right there. It's a hallmark of why the Jazz are able to defend so well without having that lockdown perimeter defender. Yes, um, Joe Ingles is good. Yes, Royce O'Neal is good, but neither of them are huge. Um, Royce O'Neal specifically is just not too big. Joe Ingles is not going to be like super explosive. Um, even Mike Conley, good defender. Donovan Mitchell, when he turns it up, can be a really good defender. But there's just not these el- this elite collection of perimeter stoppers on the Jazz, and yet they're consistently just going to rank. You know, when Rudy Gobert's on the floor, they're going to have basically the best defense in the league, um, statistically, even though that's obviously not the best way to measure it. And that's where Rudy Gobert's value is. And I get tired of hearing about screen assists on offense, too. It's just, it really is annoying. Uh, I feel like we haven't heard as much this season. Adam can correct me if I'm wrong there. He has real roles. It's been more him. jokes than than like legitimate citations, I think, from what I've seen. Yep, that's a, that's 100%. I, I, you're right there. Uh, but what he does on offense is he has role gravity off those screens where you know people who think that Andre Drummond's going to do the same thing for whatever team he ends up next after Cleveland, he's not. He has traditionally just not had that same type of gravity as the role man. And the fact that Rudy Gobert can finish and you can trust him a little bit to make those those passes when he's rolling, albeit not as much as like a, a Yusuf Nurkic or maybe even a Jared Allen at this point, he's just so devastating, fin- a devastating finisher in space. And he's going to draw guys in, in a way that again, an Andre Drummond can, a Hassan Whiteside won't. And that's value on offense. And a lot of the stuff the jazz do is built around him being able to do that. I don't think he is the fulcrum of their offense and they can still anchor lineups without him offensively. But when you have that, this transformative impact, I would call it, on the defensive end that I think at this point, you know, it's become, I guess, a meme because of that Rocket series. And then also, I think, with the COVID where he, you know, spit on it or pretend, wiped whatever on the microphone. And that was a terrible look. I'm not, I'm not even endorsing that. But the perception of him is like skewed too far toward this guy isn't as valuable as he actually is. Is he a top 10 player? Unquestionably, no. But he's in that, he's firmly entrenched in the top 10 to 20 discussion and his defense is a huge part of it and i do think the final thing here just to reiterate is that he is far more versatile and harder to scheme around than a lot of people will will just tend to throw out there and dismiss as if he's going to be this huge problem in the playoffs uh yeah if he goes up against anthony davis like that's something to watch but there are 28 other teams in the league also that are going to have that matchup problem yeah, in the in the chat, Eli has pointed out that Gobert had a, a minus one point seven DPIPM over the last three playoffs, um, and I think that the numbers have been bad. But it's also just because the Jazz in general have been overmatched in those series. You know, like last year, they were missing Boyan Bogdanovich and had to alter a lot of what they were doing with a tough matchup as well. Um, it's to me those negative numbers are an indication that he struggled, not necessarily an indication that he's been quote, played off the court, um, just because that feel, it's felt like more of a desperation play where, you know, the Jazz know that they're not going to have their absolute most explosive offense with him on the court. 
And if you're desperate to try to outscore the opponent and you're going to try something new because your entire defensive scheme is built around funneling things towards towards Gobert, letting him play on the perimeter and recover to protect the rim anyway. And when it's not working, like you need that desperation change. I'm not sure it's Gobert specifically being played off of the court so much as the Jazz in general just being overmatched in those situations. Are we ready to keep going with some Twitter questions or do we have any more requests on here? Uh, we don't have any more requests right here. Uh, we do now. We have Emmanuel who would uh, like to speak, and I'm going to add you right now, Emmanuel. How's it going? Tell us up. Not much. We're just getting ready for all the festivities tonight. So what are we talking about? Um, we're doing a, a mailbag right now. We have some questions from Twitter that we could get to, but we're giving people in the room a chance to ask any that they might have. So if you have one, we'll let you fire away. Um, can I just say the Andre Drummond hate is a little too much? Okay. Care to, I don't think it's, is it hate? Um, do you like, care no, to stand like, on the, really, like that? I like hated, hated for like no reason. There's, so I think there's just a discrepancy in his actual value to a team versus maybe he hasn't been in the best circumstances. And so you can go to two extremes and it's really the middle ground where if you look at a lot of the Detroit teams that he played on, the defense was fine with him at, on the court, and he didn't have a lot of guys who were going to contain the ball, uh, particularly at those guard positions in front of him. So that all needs to factors in. But his defensive effort is demonstrably inconsistent. There are times where he showed that he could really be more than just like someone who's going to drop back. And there's you're looking at him as a rim protector value where if he has to do anything kind of where he has to rotate a bunch or his head is on a swivel. He's just not going to have the same value as other bigs. And then even more than defense is just, we've seen him make strides on offense and that's just probably something people don't would, talk would about. You say strides or flashes though. No, I feel like it's, are they like, his have they been consistent enough? Like, yeah, he's, he's shown that he can operate at the point of attack from within a half court set and like handle the ball in transition and occasionally make some push shots. But like, I don't, I don't know that we've seen them consistently enough to call them like strides. I'll push back on that one. I will say with the number of times he's brought up the ball the past two years, um, Detroit and Cleveland, there's that. The passing out of the post has gotten a lot better. It's, I, I think what he's supposed to be good at, you know, the, the post-ups can get weird if you milk him too much. And I think we even saw that in Cleveland a little bit where uh, last year I think his post-up volume was down. And then this year it was like medium-sized, I would say, but he's just not the most efficient post player. And then as we were talking about, someone already put this in the chat too, is just, He's shooting like under 50% on layups this year, and he's never just ranked super high on a consistent basis as a dive guy when he's coming out of the the pick and roll. So I don't think Andre Drummond is a player who isn't useful. I think he was miscast as the cornerstone of a franchise. It was even at the time when they gave him the max, it was wildly difficult to build around pure fives who don't add anything when it comes to floor spacing on offense and the other things that he would need to do anchor a defense um, be you know a, a great screener and and finisher off pick and rolls. He's just never been that guy. That doesn't mean that he's bad. It's just he was miscast in Detroit, and some some of that is still carrying over. And people do probably look at his price point right now, um, nearly twenty nine million dollars this season. And we need to get away from judging players against their contracts. We need to judge him for what he is. I still just don't know. He's been in a situation where we can know what he is. And if you put him on a good team, maybe he does make them a lot better. I just don't know if Brooklyn, let's say he gets bought out and ends up in, in Brooklyn, um, reunites with Blake Griffin, maybe since that's where the rumors have Blake headed. I don't think that he's going to, based off what we've seen, noticeably improve their defense. He'll help them with the rebounding, but I don't know how much more of a 
interior presence he's going to give them against, you know, fast twitch wings and, and guards. You need someone who's probably a little bit more mobile or consistent to anchor your back line in those situations. Yeah, I've always wondered what he would have been like in a role like Tristan Thompson had with the Cleveland Cavaliers when LeBron and Kyrie were still there. Because Drummond is like a historically excellent rebounder. And that is an underappreciated and underrated skill in today's NBA because generating those second chance opportunities, which he does so well, and ending possessions on the defensive end both matter so much. He would have added a little bit more offensive optionality than Tristan Thompson did would have been probably a worse defender. I don't think he is as versatile as that prime version of Tristan Thompson was. But had he been in a situation like that where it was clear that he was the third, maybe the fourth best player on a championship caliber team, I think his reputation is drastically different than it's been when he's been attempting to anchor these more lackluster squads. Are we ready to move on to more questions, Adam? Yeah, I'm going to uh, let uh, Sravan here. I'm, uh, I apologize if I got the pronunciation wrong there, but I, I didn't see the speaker request come through. So you are now on the stage. Hi, Adam. Hi, Dan. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing good. It's finally, I'm speaking to Dan after all our interactions on Twitter. Yes, he. Uh, I appreciate you for appreciating all my terrible jokes. So shout out <laughs> to you. Yeah. So I have like... Uh, two questions so like why is the eastern conference so bad this year we are finally thinking this is the year where like eastern conference will catch up to the western conference and after the first two three weeks we thought it was possible but everything took a nosedive and the second question i have is why is travis like not fired yet Let's start with the the first one. It's probably a question that's been asked for the past 20, 20 25 years. Uh, I think the Eastern Conference is deeper at the top, where I don't know in if you look back five, ten seasons, you're not always going to have three teams that I think could legitimately win the title, and now you do in Philly, Brooklyn, and Milwaukee. Um, they are just rich with mediocre and sub-mediocre teams, and I think the biggest difference this year, which is why I'm hesitant to say that they're worse overall – uh, Boston absolutely botched his offseason. I will say that time and again. I don't, you know, not just the Gordon Hayward thing, but burning your mid-level on Tristan Thompson. It just didn't make sense. You were expecting teams like the Heat and maybe even Toronto and the Pacers to be better and the Hawks signed these free agents were supposed to be better. Indiana and Atlanta specifically, they have dealt with a, a ton of injuries to, to key players. Uh, Miami has dealt with injuries too and a, had a ton of players in and out of league health and safety protocols. The Raptors started slow and now they've had issues with um, health and safety protocols. And so there might be just a layer of this season is the culprit more than anything because it's so unpredictable and they're trying to get in games with travel amid a global pandemic. And I think maybe a team like the heat, if they had an actual off season rather than the shortest off season in professional sports history, they're probably better. So I'm hesitant to say that they're worse right now. There probably are. But when you look at Miami, Toronto, Indiana and Boston specifically, I see why the stage would be set for for disappointment. Uh, go ahead. I've, I've been, you know, disappointed at the top with the Eastern Conference, but I do think it's at least encouraging that there are more intriguing teams providing depth in the conference than we've seen in previous seasons. Whereas in the last couple of years, it felt like whoever earned those seven and eight seeds was just going to be this automatic doormat in the first round of the Eastern Conference playoffs. Like if you look at these teams that are 
are positioning themselves to at least be in contention for the play-in games, there are at least reasons to get a little bit more excited about them. You know, the Miami Heat are still sitting at number six. Uh, the, the Toronto Raptors are still sitting at number eight. The Hawks, if they get healthy, could make more noise. The Pacers, if they get healthy, could make more noise. The Wizards have been friskier of late. Like The depth of talent in the conference has definitely gotten better and substantially so. But I think it's been mitigated by those drop-offs at the top, which is why the perception hasn't changed, even if that depth maybe should have allowed for a little bit of a swing. And I'll get into that Travis Schlank question, which I think is absolutely fair. The thing I will say is that Travis Schlank is not going to get to hire another coach. This is the last coaching hire he will make in Atlanta, unless we're talking, you know, five, six years down the line. And there's what I do think is important is that it feel Lloyd Pierce, when you're looking at what happened on the court, it's just not his fault. Even if you want to play Trey Young to play drastically differently this season, it's not his fault. They just haven't had the players available. There's still no one on this team that's been healthy enough to consistently move Trey Young off the ball. What I think the issue was is that he pretty clearly lost the faith of his two best players in John Collins and Trey Young. And so it's a decision you have to make. This is a star-driven league. And if you're Atlanta, yes, you can tout your team control even over John Collins as he goes into restricted free agency. Trey is still, um, you know, he'll be extension eligible this summer. They can hit restricted free agency in 2022. So you have control over these guys. But when you're in a market like Atlanta, where you just it's it's harder to correct your big mistakes, you don't want to disenchant your stars. And it does feel like it was a move that had to be made. It was one then that was made too late. Because if this was the reason that it was made, make it over the offseason. Because you have no leg to stand on when you say, we haven't progressed as quickly as we had hoped. And it's like, well, maybe that's because Bogdan Bogdanovich has barely played. Daniel Gallinari is still ramping up after missing a ton of games. Chris Dunn has not played. Um, Rondo has been not readily available. And I would say that was actually just probably a bad move by the Hawks to begin with. And I'm assuming resident Atlanta Hawks fan, Adam Frommel uh, agrees there. This, this couldn't have been brought back to basketball reasons, like specifically or purely. It was, it felt like a John Collins, Trey young, other players on the team per the athletic that Cam Reddish was, didn't even like him too much. And so it's like, you can't even have supporters of what are, you know, three of the most important players in the organization and definitely the two most important players to the organization. That's the issue. And it Schlank definitely deserves to be criticized for not making the move sooner. Um, or at least not being more candid about like, look, we needed a new voice. This couldn't have been a, a straight on progress thing, but now you spent this money, regardless of whether it was pressure from, from the team governors, you spent it. And if you, you know, miss the playoffs this season, which is the distinct possibility. And then you're off to a slow start next year. You're not this next coaching hire you make is not only going to be your last, but you're not going to make it to the trade deadline next year if the Hawks aren't in the playoff picture. I guess I should preface my answer by saying that I'm currently recording this while wearing a Hawks hat. So I might be like a little bit biased here. Um, I, I was I was very disappointed to see Lloyd Pierce, the person go. Um, by all accounts, he's just a wonderful human being who has done nothing but positives in the Atlanta community and the surrounding areas. I wasn't that disappointed to see Lloyd Pierce, the coach, go because, as, as Dan mentioned, it's so it's so important to have that rapport and relationship with the team's best players, especially as one is preparing to move into restricted free agency, could be on the trade block in the coming month and all that. And as we've seen in the player empowerment era, you have to keep your star players happy. Um, and and Trey, it's not too early to start thinking that way about Trey Young. Um, I, I also I, I had qualms with some of the rotations that he used in late game scenarios. It felt like he was a little bit too stubborn 
with keeping bench units in the game, even as they were hemorrhaging points and not getting the best players on the court soon enough. Um, maybe that's him trying to play more of the long game and, and develop players and figure out what's going to work and what isn't. But it did feel like there were at least three or four games that could have gone the opposite way had the star players come back in in the fourth quarter a little bit sooner. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I had mixed feelings about that one. Did Adam get your name right? And would you like to respond at all? What? Uh, yeah, my name is right. My name is Pranav Shravan. I never would have done it right on the first try. So applause to you, Adam. And um, thanks for the questions, Ron. Did you have any, did you have anything you wanted to add or? So uh, one, like most of the moves, what he made, maybe defended, but I, I didn't get paying Galnari 20 million and not paying Colin. So if he did both, I would be fine, but he did one and not the other. That always felt like the questionable one to me. Um, especially as we've seen like just how lead-footed Gallo has been this season. It doesn't feel like that's going to age well at all, even within this season, especially if it prices John Collins out of Atlanta this offseason. So that was that was the head-scratcher to me. I, I, I think I, I understand what they were thinking in that we already have this strong, growing nucleus, especially if Cam Reddish had continued to progress like we saw at the end of his rookie season, especially if Chris Dunn and Rajon Rondo had been healthy, if Tony Snell has been able to contribute, if Bogdan Bogdanovich hasn't gotten hurt, had all those pieces gone properly, like maybe you're looking at Gallo as this kind of luxury addition where you can use him as this super uh, sub scorer in important moments in playoff games. But it's it's clear, at least in part because of injuries, that Atlanta has not progressed to the point where that signing makes sense. So I, I think I understand the thinking, but it was optimistic even at the time. So yeah, my thoughts on it, like as like a team building perspective, like, you don't pay twenty million dollars for backups, right? It's almost uh, it's very rare that you pay twenty million dollars for a backup, and also and and you're paying twenty million dollars to backup of your second best player. Like how how is that logical? And you didn't even trade him. So if you right, want to pay right. John Collins and pay. Gallo, it's fine. It's totally fine because you're paying what you paid, you what you would have paid John Collins. But you don't do either. So now, what are you doing in the summer? So are you trading him at trade deadline? Are you silent trading him? So those value propositions are quite less. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I'm with you there. And I think ultimately I would almost 100% agree that it just it doesn't make sense to pay a backup that much money from a team building perspective. I do think that it's worth acknowledging that Atlanta's situation was slightly different because John Collins still had not had an extension kick in. Trey Young is still operating on a rookie salary. You're expecting to get big contributions out of both Cam Reddish and DeAndre Hunter, who are also on rookie salaries, as is Onyeko Kongwu. So if you are building out such a large percentage of your rotation with such cheap players, then you can afford to splurge in those non-traditional areas. But given what we've seen since then, like it, it validates your point that no, it doesn't usually make sense from a team building perspective. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Dan. Yeah. Thank you for your question. All right, Dan, would you like to uh, lead us through some of the Twitter questions that we have? Yeah, well, I'm going to try and fix the echoing problem I have over here. Um, I'm going to throw a question that was made for you, two of them. Kim asks, 
Why do your rankings, why do your total points added rankings paint Nikola Jokic as the runaway MVP candidate, yet other ladders have LeBron and Bede higher? And then the other Embiid question that's related to this, Secretary of Defense asks, why does Jokic lead defensive points saved? He's definitely not the best defender in the league, so I'm wondering why it shows him on top. Yeah, I feel like this is one that we end up answering in just about every mailbag these days. And it's it's basically just, you know, TPA as a stat is by no means perfect. And we advocate not to use the defensive portion of it as anything more than just like, a table setting piece that you should then adjust however you see fit because the eye test ultimately is going to be more important for defense with Jokic specifically. He's benefiting from both uh, the interaction effects between um, assists and rebounds, which tend to inflate the stat to the point, the basketball reference, which provides the box plus minus numbers from which TPA is derived actually had to adjust to BPM 2.0 because Russell Westbrook basically broke the system during his MVP campaign. And we're seeing something pretty similar here with Jokic. So the way that the defensive point saved portion of TPA is calculated, we, we calculate the overall value of a player, which is a pretty solid number. So like when you see Jokic atop the league, like that does make sense. Then we calculate the offensive points added, which again is a pretty solid, reliable calculation. And the defensive value is derived by subtracting one from the other and assigning all leftover value to defense. Ultimately, that's partially because we don't really know how to pigeonhole rebounding into either end of the court since it kind of happens in between possessions, for lack of a better way to describe it. Uh, So the, the defensive value doesn't always work and we see weird outliers like Jokic. I would never in a million years say that he is one of the best defenders in the NBA. He's an adequate, maybe even good on some nights defender because he's so good um, between the point of attack and the rim, even if he doesn't excel on either of those more prominent defensive locations. But yeah, I mean, he's not this defensive superstar. And in the MVP conversation, he's not running laps around the the rest of the field. It's just a product of a flawed stat. I've got that spiel practiced at this point, Dan. You've done a good job explaining it. Let's go. Meyer Rothbaum asks, how much of the Sun's success this year is actually due to CP3? A lot. I mean, that that team is so deep and so talented. Like, I, I don't think Mikhail Bridges has gotten nearly enough credit for his contributions. I think it was our, our last mailbag episode where I, I or was it when we were doing All Star Reserve picks or something? I, I think I said that uh, you know, I, I could see an argument for him at least getting some consideration from an All Star standpoint. Um, obviously, he was never going to be selected to the team. But as as deep and talented as this Suns team is, like CP3 is still the impetus for almost everything that they do. Like he controls offensive possessions. He empowers players to be better versions of themselves. He's such an important leader on and off the floor. It, I don't think it is in any way coincidental that we saw the Thunder overachieve last season when he was there. And we're seeing the Suns immediately become a, a team in contention for a spot in the NBA Finals. Um, as, su- as soon as he gets there and skipping so many of the typical building steps that we see from NBA organizations, like even if he's not putting up these massive MVP caliber numbers, his impact is right there. Adam, can you hear me at the moment? I can hear you. Awesome. So that seems like it's worked out. Let's get to another Twitter question unless we have any more in here. I am not seeing any more in here, so let's keep going. 
Okay, yeah. So let's get to. I'm not gonna ask ask that one. Um, best. This one comes from Mike La's in my veins. Best stats besides offensive and defensive rating to consider when betting. I'm assuming you want me to take this one. Yeah, I know nothing about the betting stuff, so, so it's all you. You should definitely look at past against the spread rankings, where they're doing as a favorite, um, what they're doing as an underdog. I think what's also really important is can you look at, well, you can look at it. Go look at how are they playing on the road? Are they on the second night of the back-to-back? Try and look at those spe- specific numbers. Um, you can also look at, you know, when you're seeing kind of how, uh, who's available for each team, go back and look at recent matchups. If it's, you know, Lakers heat and they haven't changed the iterations of their teams too much, you can see, well, who's struggled historically against the Lakers um, from the heat. How does Jimmy Butler fare when LeBron and Anthony Davis are playing? NBA.com has an impact tool where you could literally sort that. So if you go to NBA.com slash stats, um, go to their impact tool, which is at this point, it's located under tools. And then there's impact. You can sort things like that. But I definitely think it's important from a more team-wide perspective. Just look at, you know, what is the situation? Are they home away? Are they on the second night of a back-to-back this season specifically? Or is it a fourth game and in five nights type deal? Try and see how they fared on on little rest. Uh, but that's, you know, looking at numbers for betting, it feels like that's probably something that's more foolproof insofar as betting can be foolproof during a regular season. Whereas right now, this is just anything but. And there's so we've had last, you know, players written off last minute. Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons in the All-Star game this, this you know, Sunday, tonight, as we're recording this. So that's something to consider as well. But I would definitely look at records home and away, the records against the spread, and then, you know, time, if it's a back-to-back or the, the front end of a back-to-back too. Those records are all publicly available. I believe they're on teamrankings.com is the site where I've always gotten them from. from. So uh, definitely check those out. Eli, I'm going to invite you to speak again here, but my first question for you is if you could hear Dan, because I'm I'm not sure if we're I having technical difficulties or not here. I can't hear him. I just you can hear him. Okay. And did you have another question for us? Yeah, I, I have another question. Uh, what are some of the defensive stats that you like to use, and uh, what are some of the tracking stats that uh, you like to use in your analysis? Um, you know, I, I don't try to subscribe to any one over the others at this point. I think that with pretty much any stat that we come across, like as long as you're properly contextualizing it, then it can work. So like with the tracking stats, I think it's important to know, like, especially the defensive tracking stats that those aren't always accurate. The matchup data is not foolproof. The offensive ones tend to be a little bit better there. With all the catch-all catch metrics, like it's important to know what the shortcomings are. Uh, for example, the, the defensive point saves in, in TPA that we just talked about. So I, I'm not sure that there's any like one that is absolutely always better than the others. Um, but it, it's just it's always important to provide the proper context. Dan, I don't know if you have anything to add on that one. Do you still hear me is the real question here. I can hear you. I can hear myself in the background too. This is just wildly frustrating at the moment. No, but the, the, the tracking stats specifically, uh, there are things that I like to look at to really break down player shot profiles on when you're looking at offense, defense is just so much tougher. Uh, you know, look at what they're shooting off the dribble. Uh, you want to see what they're looking at when they're shooting with zero dribbles too is, you know, catch and shoot guys. 
you can get into play types too, is what I really like to look at for big men. I feel like it could be super valuable to see how they're doing as role men. If that's how they're, they're used. If you know that they're, you know, popping, that's, you know, you're going to want to look at their catch and shoot numbers more so than that. The thing that I've really been leaned on in recent years though, is when we're talking about players who can run an offense, you want to look at their pick and roll initiation. Sure. But what is their ability to, you know, finish at the rim unassisted? I'm looking at their unassisted, uh, jump shot totals, their, their pull up three pointers. That's become, that might be one of the most important shots in basketball right now is being able to hit that off the dribble three. It's basically anchored a a huge part of Jason Tatum's superstardom, just these off the dribble jumpers in general. So those are the numbers that I continue to, to lean on the the hardest when I'm looking at players specifically, if you're looking at teams, um, you can still look at those team wide stats, but they're just going to be a little bit noisier because there's so much more data contributing from other players in there. Yeah, I'm with you there. Here's another question for Adam. Max Hoover asks, to what do you attribute RJ Barrett's really low total <laughs> points added? Um, well, I I would hope that this person has watched RJ Barrett play basketball this season, and I feel like it's like fairly self-explanatory because he doesn't know what he's doing on defense, and he's not the greatest shooter yet. Like the, the quality of shots that he's taking are better this year. They're just not going in with enough consistency. And he, his level of performance has really vacillated throughout the year. We saw him get off to a great start. Then after that, like he really dropped off. And then he started hitting shots again. And it feels like a lot of the Knicks don't really love passing him the ball, which is understandable <laughs> because he's not making shots. I'm going to push back on your RJ Barrett takes a little bit. He's hitting shots. He's shooting 53% from three over his past 14 games. The volume. And what was it the 14 before that, though? It actually wasn't that egregiously low, but I can I can look at that. The problem, I think, is more so, and you touched upon it, is the inconsistent volume with which he gets to play. Uh, it does feel like, first of all, he's not taking a ton of threes still. Like, there's still, he has those one of five nights, oh of three nights, but then he'll have these one of ones, three of threes. So, I think that factors into it. He's also not, and he was under 30% in his um, previous 14 games. So Adam is vindicated only partially. That's just my dad. I'm he, not vindicated on my most improved no, player he did pick, third place vote for RJ Barrett before the season started. In that Adam's might defense, have been like a slight misfire. Just a, just a slight. But his role has changed because they're so built around Julius Randle now. And you're not seeing someone who's going to average as many assists. I think that's going to contribute to everything that we see with the, with the numbers and the noise. Um, so yeah, I, I, that would be my theory. So why his uh, TPA solo, but I do think he's a better player than he was last season. And that's clear. And I also think for sure he's not a great defender, but I think even there, his size has helped him a lot where it's, he's listed at six, six, but I think he's like six, seven, six, eight at this point. So uh, still, I don't, I don't have a feel for whether he's going to be a star and I would push back against anybody who says they know that he's going to be, well, and that's like kind of what my follow-up question to you is going to be, especially, you know, given the Knicks fandom, like when and if the Knicks are a contender again, which I think is probably more of an if, um, is Barrett a part of that team? I don't know. I think it's the same. You can ask the same question about Julius Randle, where people are, I think he's eligible for a four-year, $106 million extension this summer. And should they offer it to him? Is this a, I don't want to call it a fluke, but we don't normally see players make 
this type of jump in the middle of their career where he's just become, he's a legitimate offensive hub as a playmaker. That's just not something. And he's always been okay as a passer, but it's often felt like a last resort for him. And it's just, he's actually creating high quality shots. You could ask the same question about Mitchell Robinson. I'm more willing to buy in on, on Randall now, just two reasons. One, the pedigree, like there's a reason that he was drafted so high out of Kentucky even if his career got off to that ridiculously unlucky start when he broke his leg like four minutes into his first game with the Lakers, I think. Um, and two is like, this isn't just a skill progression. It's a mentality adjustment. Like all of a sudden we're seeing Randall not just have the ability to make these kick out passes as he's driving to his left, but actually like looking to make the right play. No longer doing the whole like bowl in a China shop routine that he he so often lapsed into in previous stops. So like I, I'm I'm buying into this long term. I, I don't think that's unfair. I'm just is if Julius Randle, RJ Barrett, and who is the if they're your two best players, are they the two best players on a contender? And who's the third best player on the Knicks right now? It's Mitchell Robinson, I think. He's not even he's not even healthy at the moment. Doesn't but I guess say much overall, about the rest of the rotation, does it? If you're talking about overall, I would agree. Like in the scope of their long term outlook, I the, the Knicks have been a great story this year. Their defense has been their their defensive shot profile is wild to me. They give up a lot of threes and looks at the rim, and yet they're still just among the the best defense in the league. And when it's this large of a sample size, maybe it doesn't normalize. I do believe they have the hardest remaining schedule by win percentage in the NBA over the second half. So that will be a great test for them. But I don't know if they have the players who are going to, even one player who's going to be on the version of them that's an actual threat for a title. And that's me just saying, we don't know enough about RJ Barrett yet, I would say. And I do think that Julius Randle is going to need to give you another season like this before you can just declare it so. And I'm hesitant to bring up Frank Nilakina here because I have to work in an hour. Yeah, so let's not talk about Frank Nilakina, who leads the league in three-point percentage, in case anyone wants to know, among anyone who's taken at least 20 attempts, and he has taken 21. So Frank Nilakina, most accurate shooter alive. Let's see if we can get to two more questions. This one is comes from Jay. Best defense in the final two minutes of the fourth quarter. And the thing that I won't look at, one, this isn't necessarily a scientific thing, but I don't want to look at just the last two minutes in fourth quarters in general because there's a lot of garbage time taken into those minutes. So if we look at clutch time on NBA.com, uh, in the final two minutes of games where the diff- the point differential is no greater than five points. And this is where the small sample size buzzer is just like echoing through all of our brains. I will say the largest sample size that we're working with is 39 minutes, and it comes from the Boston Celtics, Bulls, and Indiana Pacers. The second best defense as of right now is the San Antonio, or the best defense, I don't know why I said second best. The best defense comes from the Philadelphia 76ers. They are, they have a defensive rate of 80.7 in the final two minutes of games that enter crunch time. The San Antonio Spurs. The San Antonio Spurs are second, the Grizzlies are third, the Bucks are fourth, and the Cleveland Cavaliers are, are coming in fifth. I was going to say, it sounded so great despite the small samples until you had to go beyond the top four. Can you guess which team has the most wins in this situation? Hmm. Maybe like Phoenix. They are not even in the top. Really? Okay. Not oh, even wait, close. I was about to say they're not even in the top 25. They're in the top, they're in the top 10. I just skipped over them. Philly, <laughs> Philly is 14 and four in games wow. that enter crunch. What, what is Phoenix? Phoenix is nine and nine in these minutes. They're wonky. 
they've had yeah. like Chris Paul's been fantastic to them. And that's that's why I went with it, just because I know how many games I've watched that have felt like they've come down to the wire for Phoenix. I'm convinced that you. I thought you were going to go with Portland, which would have been a very good guess because they're second. The Blazers stress. That was me my out. second guess for sure. No, your face, the raking flies not. The Blazers stress me out. Their ability to stress me out when I have no rooting interest in them whatsoever is it's impressive. I would just How do you not have a rooting interest in them when Damian Lillard is on that roster? I'm saying it's I'm indifferent to whether they win or lose. Damian Lillard is a fantastic basketball player and I love, 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 love watching him. But I'm you know, my night's not gonna be ruined if they lose, and yet I'm like I'm sweating over here when whenever they play. They seem to make games way more interesting than they need to be. Yeah, that's fair. When will the Kings finally make the playoffs? Asks Gerardo. <laughs> I mean, look, <laughs> is never a valid answer. I mean, what what have we seen from the Kings that demonstrates that they're going to be able to like work their way out of this quagmire they consistently find themselves in? Like De'Aaron Fox is awesome. There's no doubt about that. Marvin Bagley has shown more lately, which still isn't saying that much. Tyrese Halliburton has been awesome as a rookie, as we expected. And yet it still doesn't feel like they're even remotely close to playoff contention. Like they're currently 14 and 22 during the all-star break, which still leaves them four spots out of the play in tournament in the Western conference. And I just, I don't know what that has transpired over the last decade would give us any indication that we know when they're finally going to turn it around. It's, it's going to be like one of those out of the blue surprises in like 2045 where it's wow. like, wow, the, the Kings are making the playoffs. No, I, I mean, really- and like, I know that's hyperbolic, but like, do you have any confidence in this current core getting there? Especially knowing what we know about the front office and like how not savvy it has been. Here's my thing. Just tell me when they're going to fire Luke Walton, and then two years after that, they're going to be in the playoffs. We'll just, look. but in all honesty, I'm going to. Here's some more pushback. I think the Kings have what could be a, an actual core of a good team in place. De'Aaron Fox, Tyrese Halliburton, Rashawn Holmes is so good. I think you can make the case that he's been probably I, I, he's not. He hasn't been their best, but he's been one of their two or three best players. Harrison Barnes, even though he's like cooled off a little bit of late. He's been great for them. Even Buddy Heal. How much maybe, longer is Harrison Barnes going to be there? I would say like maybe roughly like March 24th. You think he's going to get moved? They have to become yeah, sellers do. first. And the problem here, or I don't know if it's a problem, is that you have they, – they might get expensive, but they have good NBA players when you look at Heald, Barnes, Fox, Holmes, and Halliburton. Like that's a real core to start with, but you need to flesh that out. You need to afford it because Fox's max extension kicks in. And you have to re-sign Holmes if you don't move him at the trade deadline. This if you if you let Rashawn Holmes leave for nothing in free agency, yeah, you failed. So no, I don't have faith in the organization, but the talent it feels like there's more than we've seen from them. And can they play at a more consistent pace? That's been something that Luke Walton has struggled with, and it, you shouldn't when you have De'Aaron Fox on your team. And this year they have played faster, so to their credit with that, um, they do need. I would say if we're looking to identify the biggest need for this team, they need wings. Just bad. Harrison Barnes is not a true wing. You probably want him matching up with fours. You need to figure out what's going on with Marvin Bagley too, because that kind of gums up the front court rotation where he can play the five a little bit, but defensively he really can. And so if he's a four, that limits the amount of time you could play Harrison Barnes there, but they need to find, they need to find a way to get more wings in place. And if let's set, I'm going to set the over under 2.5 seasons for the Kings to make the playoffs. Are you taking the over or the under? Yeah, I mean, I'm still going to take the over just because... 3.5. I, I don't know. Like, I don't know when they're going to be in playoff contention again. Like, that's that's my point here is that 
they they do have talent on this roster, but that's not enough, especially in the West. Like, what indications do we have it's, that they're going to make the right moves at any I, point? Like, what a, what has this current current front office done that gives you any confidence? I also like. I also wonder if we were like a little bit too quick to coronate De'Aaron Fox. But that's not to say that he's not this incredibly exciting fringe all-star caliber player. But has he made the improvement that you expected for him to make during his age 23 season? Like the three-point shot still isn't there. He still makes a lot of careless turnovers. His defense has been atrocious. And like part of that is the inconsistency around him. And he's so obviously remarkably talented. But like, are we confident that he can be the guy who can lift this team into the playoffs? You are. And I think that's... Well, no, I, I think that's a valid take. I do, but I don't think that it's like this absolute set in stone fundamental truth for the Sacramento organization. As someone who said that last season De'Aaron Fox was going to be better than Chris Paul, maybe I lose all credibility here. But there's he's added layers to his offensive game. He has a real step no back doubt. jumper. No doubt. I'm not I'm not arguing any of that. Um and just with the volume, like I guess his free throw shooting you know, when you're looking at the volume is a little bit inconsistent, but he gets there enough. And if you have an actual step back jumper that teams need to defend, I do think he could end up being the, when you're looking at what he does as a passer, they need to probably surround the right personnel with him. Yeah, Tyrese Halliburton is going to end up being the perfect running mate for him. And I think that helps too. When you look at what Halliburton does defensively, Fox is, I would say he's atrocious, but it's kind of like the John Wall. I know these two are linked together forever, but prime John Wall was like, well, why doesn't he play if you see him play two great games of deep, two games of great defense, why doesn't he play this way all the time? And so there's that question. I, it, yeah, if you're asking, is De'Aaron Fox going to be the best player on a championship contender? It's it's a fair question, but I think he's shown enough through his first. This is year number four for us to be like, well, yes, he has the capacity to be that be that player. And there's just there's been upticks in just a lot of the stuff that he's done, like clockwork, every single year. So. Right. And, and just to clarify, like, I'm not saying that any of that is false. And I do firmly believe that he's going to be a multi-time all-star. I just wonder if we were a little bit too quick to coronate him as a guy who can elevate a team right now to that playoff level. Look, we're speaking into the void now, which seems like a great time to get out of here. Uh, for those who are listening to this in podcast form, Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Hardware Knox wherever you're getting your podcast. We'll get better at these uh, locker room mailbags as we move forward. I absolutely promise. Um, until next time, we'll give you the shout-out to the NBA's three-point percentage leader at the All-Star break, the one, the only, Frank Nielakina. 